there are just some things that can't happen online. Am I right? Like clinics and labs. I mean, how? How can you reproduce in the virtual space the experience of having your hands on a beaker or on a patient's body? That's what so many faculty have been wrestling with during the COVID-19 pandemic. And on today's Faculty Futures Lab, two award-winning SDSU faculty, Bart Asklani from our Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering and Professor Teresa Carlson from Chemistry, will share how they did just this, running labs during a pandemic in the virtual space and with some pretty amazing outcomes. Take a listen. So I'm Sarah Elkind, the director of CTL, and today I'm talking with Teresa Carlson and Baris Aksanli about their the projects that won them the Faculty Forward Awards for the fall of 2020. And so welcome, Teresa and Baris, and um, we're really I'm really interested in hearing about why you did what you did and how it worked. So let's start with Teresa. Um, can you tell uh, tell me briefly what inspired you to do the things that you did. You can say a little bit about what you did and then why you did it. Sure. Um, so our labs, unfortunately, were shut down due to COVID. And over the summer, um, I tried to implement lab kits from a company, but the price was astronomical. It was $200 a pop. <laughs> per student. That's that's too much. And as a faculty member who's part of open resource and low-cost textbooks, um, that was really out of the question for me for the fall semester. So when we had to transition again from in-person labs online, I already um, thought about it over the summer. What were the goals I wanted for my students to get the same experience as they would have in a lab? So the topics I needed to cover was, you know, reading a lab manual, setting up the experiment and analyzing the experiment, as well as learning techniques. So I used several different resources to um, implement that, that I already had um, already made um, into the syllabus just in case we were going to transition online. So the students their only thing was they are now no longer in person, they're online, but none of their assignments changed. That, um, that's phenomenal. What did you do about the physical skills? Cause so much of you, this is chemistry labs, right? Chemistry so labs. like there's like, there's some f- learning physical techniques there. Yeah. So I had to use two programs. One I was already using um, before COVID, which was teaching the students how to use techniques via simulation and videos that were pre-done. This allowed the students before they even came into lab to have a general idea because we get students who, you know, took chemistry in high school two years ago or aren't really familiar with the chemistry techniques or equipment we use. So having these, what we call pre-assignments in, in the OWL lab skills, allow the students to kind of, you know, be a little bit more ahead in the lab. They had a general idea of what they were doing. Then um, because of COVID, we um, partnered up with Hayden McNeil, who is my publisher for the lab manual, and we were using their late night labs, lab simulations. So this allowed us to um, mimic them having a lab manual in front of them, them setting up the experiment, doing a mini experiment, 
not really collecting too much of the data because it's there's no variation, unfortunately. And um, it was also a low cost option for my students. Mm-hmm. So they Hayden McNeil luckily bundled the simulations with the lab manual. So it was only a $33 increase. And when you take in the fact that the students didn't have to pay for lab safety goggles and apron, um, gloves, or had the lab fee, um, they actually saved money in the long run. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, what about you, Barris? Hello, Sarah. Uh, this is Barris. I'm an assistant professor in the electrical and computer engineering department. Well, I specialize more on the computer side. The classes I teach are all in the computer engineering side of the department. I am specializing in embedded systems, so all the courses I teach have a lot of programming aspects. So I teach a lab, I teach a course that has an inherent lab component, and then I teach another course that has a lot of programming component. So before this course even had started, I was able to move my labs online. So it actually really helped me transition the everything online. But for this specific interview, what I did was in my other class, the 500 level class, which has senior undergraduates and graduate students, as a cons- the course has a has considerable amount of programming in it, and but it doesn't have a lab component. So I'm supposed to just assign students programming assignments, show them some coding class and hope that they figure out some parts by themselves. This was how it was working before. And like in person, it was working kind of fine because they were able to ask their questions after class, during the office hours. They were more proactive, but online actually put a strain on students' ability to ask questions. I don't know if they got more shy or they have less time, but then I realized that, well, in the past, in-person classes, they were just coming to the class watching my presentation or what I do on the board. But, and I was showing code on my computer, so they were just looking at it. Well, in this case, they're still going to look at the code that I'm writing, but I have a much bigger advantage because if they're looking at what I'm doing, I know they're gonna be in front of their computers this time. So this actually enabled me to do some synchronous coding sessions in my class. Like I was just opening up my coding environment and I just start typing and I'm just saying, okay, now try this yourself. And they would just go ahead and try and ask their questions on the spot because with coding, there's a lot of trial and error. Like just, they just have to get their hands dirty and that getting their hands dirty part can be actually scary for some students because they might be afraid of making mistakes. I understand that. But if they see someone right in front of them making those mistakes for them, it actually encourages them a lot. And I sometimes found myself just making deliberate mistakes when I'm writing code and hoping that the students would catch them. And they did most of the time. They even like raced themselves just to spot the error and tell me what was wrong. And that those live sessions were one of the most liveliest sessions I had in my uh, synchronous online sections. Like 
I wasn't allowing students to unmute themselves because it was a crowded class, like 65, 70 students. So if I enabled them talk, I would spend considerable amount of time just to regulate their talk. But instead I said, don't mute, don't unmute yourself, but just use the chat box. If you have any question, if you want to say something, write on the chat box. And I just took advantage of using multiple monitors. In one monitor, I was doing my work. And in the other one, I had my notes and my chat box and I was like, regularly monitoring it and it was quite fruitful and I got emails from students after every live programming session saying like when is the next one like we oh can't wow yeah and that actually showed a lot in student performance because the programming assignment grades like jumped to the average grade jumped to like 88 percent that was huge for an engineering, like upper level engineering class. That is so exciting. Yeah. So are, are you gonna keep doing, are you gonna find a way to take this into future programming yes. classes? Yes, so the first thing I wanna do is I actually want to, even if we go back to in-person, I wanna create a resemblance to this somehow. Like I would either ask the students to bring their computers or even if they can't, they can, I would still make the live session available synchronous via Zoom, even if it is in person, because that class doesn't have a lab component. So it would be, or I can try to schedule a lab room to mm -hmm. get access for it for students. But even in any way, I'll try to find a way to like port this to the in-person environment too. But it, this really works well in online class environments because, again, if they're watching me, I know they're in front of their computer. So mm -hmm. it actually solves a lot of issues. I, I find that so fascinating. And I'm, I'm really interested in, in the, like, how to, how to make that happen. How to, you know, is there a way to dive even deeper? Is there a way to do synchronous programming where they're even more involved in the in in the process i think there are programs for that like they can write code in real time like in groups or mm -hmm. like multiple people people can watch other people etc but uh i thought about that too but i didn't want to do it initially at least because i know like at least students they can be not too confident about what they're doing with their code. They may not mm -hmm. want to show it. Mm -hmm. I know some, some of those students will be very eager to show their skills and stuff, especially if they have previous experience on it. But what I was doing, I knew that most of the students did not have any experience. Mm -hmm. And we were dealing with lower level programming constructs in an operating system. So, which is much more different than the general purpose programming they did before. So it required like more deeper level and lower level understanding of how an operating system works. And some students I imagined could get scared because they can break things because it's not just <laughs> their code, they're working in an operating system and it becomes easier to break it. They wouldn't do too much damage because everything can be just gone if they just restarted their computer, but it can be scary, I understand. So that's why I wanted to show it to them, like mm -hmm. how it is done. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I did actually one of these live programming sessions yesterday in my other class, in my lab-oriented class. I just showed them like, okay, here's a tool we are going to use. Here's a device we are going to use. Okay, this is what happens when you do this. This is what happens when you do this. And immediately I started getting more questions than I would usually get. The, the number of students in the live session is the same. It's just you start getting more questions. You start seeing students getting more engaged in class activities that way. That's very exciting. That is very, very exciting. So what about you, Teresa? What about the um, the simulations and video? And, and this is, these are the intro chemistry classes, right? Is That's that- the first semester general chemistry course. Um, so they should have had high school chemistry or have taken Chem 100, which is mm-hmm. the introduction to chemistry. So, yeah, um, just implementing all these different tools, you know, at first, you know, I'm playing telephone in a way because I have over 500 students. So I have to tell the TA and the TA has to tell the student and it's telephone, unfortunately. So that was um, one of my biggest struggles was making sure that TAs understood why we had these programs. So my TAs were used to the pre-assignments. They know what a pre-lab is. That's a requirement for all labs. But adding in the hate and make meal simulations and then also adding in a data analysis component so students learned how to write a lab report, which is something we really focus on a lot in the Chem 200 and 202 program. Um, It was a little challenging at first, you know, reminding the TAs every time you step into your Zoom session, you want to explain why they're doing, you know, a pre-assignment, why they are watching a video of other TAs doing the experiment, why they're doing the Hayden McNeil experiment, and why they're doing the data analysis. All of these components is mimicking what they would have done in a in-person lab. So we have to take all these different little puzzle pieces and bring them together but we also have to remind ourselves that students aren't chemists. Students have probably never seen, you know, a full chemistry lab. So we have to make sure they understand why we're doing what we're doing. So they have a better focus of our end goal. And um, how did you feel like it worked? Uh, it worked pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, we're still doing it this semester, um, but I'm also trying to explain more to students when I pop into lecture. Hey, this is why we're doing this. So it's coming from the horse's mouth in a way so they know why they're doing what they're doing. But, um, you know, for a student, when you have so many different programs, it gets overwhelming and confusing um, luckily, several years ago, I created a Chem 200 to website. So I just put everything on the website so they have a one-stop shop. <laughs> so they don't have to go to Blackboard and look for things. It's all there for them. The um, I, I think it's really interesting and um, and really uh, effective probably to spend so much time explaining why students are doing, why the students are doing what they're doing, particularly when it's so, so different. Is, is that something that you've, that you've carried over from previous semesters or is that something that you really have felt like is new because of the challenges now? So we always had it in the syllabus and we thought our students would read it. 
didn't happen all the time. So now voicing it a little bit more, I think kind of helps the students to understand why they're using the programs that they're using. It's not busy work. It's we're trying to replicate what they would have gone if they were in person, because eventually we're going to be in person and some of these students are going to be continuing on in chemistry and they're going to be expected to know what a barrette is, know how to do a titration without any explanation. So I'm my focus and goal is to make sure when they um, pass Chem 200 and 202, they're able to move on to Chem 201 and they won't have any issues with any of the techniques because they were able to replicate that in either the simulations or in the data analysis. Mm-hmm. So I, um, what are you going to, I want to ask you the same question I asked Paris. What, what do you feel like you want to keep using? Once? Uh, definitely the pre-assignments. I was using that pre-COVID um, just because students would do so much better when they understood a technique or were able to practice it before coming into lab. Um, I would also um, probably be more vocal during the lectures, like, hey, this is why we're doing this, this, and this, and reminding TAs to always, you know, voice why we're doing what we're doing. So why are we learning about, you know, volumetric equipment, for example? Why is this important? How is this going to relate to your degrees? I think, you know, making sure students understand how this relates to them um, is going to translate better for them understanding why they need to know it. Mm-hmm. I think so. well, that was always motivating to me. I didn't like learning things if I couldn't figure out why I was learning them. Yeah. <laughs> Did um, let me see. Looking at my questions, so um, was. Barrist already talked about what surprised him about what he did, which was that there were so many more questions in these live sessions. And, and um, this obviously, I, I loved your description, Barris, of the students kind of racing to post first, to be the first one to post when they spotted a problem that you had inserted, which I think is super fun. Um, was there anything, Teresa, that surprised you about what you were doing? Um. I was a little bit surprised on the fact that students were really hesitant in trying new things, Mm. Um, especially since our students are Gen Zers. So I thought, you know, hey, we're going to try something new Um, would inspire them to, you know, break a few things and, you know, try a few things. But they were, um, like Boris was saying, are very hesitant to break things. And in chemistry, there is no wrong answer. You learn from your mistakes. So, you know, you catch something on fire, you learn from it. Um, Unfortunately, in a lab simulation environment, it's, you don't learn the fact that a mistake is okay because it tells you you're wrong instead of let's learn from this. Um, Those are things I wish was a little bit different in simulations, but um, I, I was really surprised though on a lot of other students who were, excited to try something new as well. So there was the students who were a little hesitant and then there was the students who were, let's try something new. So, um, so did you, it sounded Barris like you encountered some of that same hesitation to try something new or to try something 
that could go wrong. What do you do when you are, how do you encourage students to go ahead and plunge in when they are being hesitant to try something new? Well, the first thing I would tell is that it's not the end of the world, especially in computer world. Like as long as you don't physically harm your computer, it's salvageable and it is done. And I try to teach them good programming practices or good development practices where they can actually take it to their careers as well. Like save your work, take checkpoints so that you don't have to start from scratch. If you know something is working, save it so that it's more like games. Like, especially if those students played games before, they understand what I say because that's how it works in gaming environments too. Like, especially if you work with a game with that has like a story going on, there are like checkpoints so that you don't have to start from the beginning. But I think the biggest thing is that it is okay. Like if you do this, and I try to give them examples. If you do it this way, this is an error and this is the result and how is how you can solve it. Of course, I can't give them all possible errors or problems, but I try to give them the main ones that they can face with most probability so that they can learn by themselves, like how to react when something happens. I find that I, I have found it very valuable to teach them how to learn by themselves also, not just what I teach, but how to learn by what they learned in class, like how to improve themselves, like in a positive feedback loop. How do you do that? Well, I let them fail. <laughs> <laughs> in some of the assignments like sometimes they get angry but it's okay because they have to figure it out it's, it's it's a competitive world like they have to know that it's not spoon feeding it's not i can't always like give them what they're supposed to do but i can show them that they have to go that way but they have to maybe jump over a rock or just go around something so they have to learn those like things but it all it happens with experience mm -hmm. some students will do it naturally it's good for them but for some they have to learn by like failing but it doesn't mean a bad grade or anything they just have to try like, they just yeah it's learning when a, a program doesn't work not learning when they get the f on the test yeah. although that can be really constructive also when yeah. a student is struggling with something to, to help direct them, give them the tools they need to do it better the next time. Yeah. What about you, Teresa? What do you do when you, when you encounter those students who are really hesitant to, to try something new? Um, so I have freshmen usually, so they're fresh out of high school. Um, so unfortunately I do have to help them out a little bit, like reminding them, clear your cash and cookies, use Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> Those type of things I thought they would kind of know and surprisingly, no, they don't. So I usually try to put it in words that they understand like, hey, if YouTube's not working, what could be the problem? Maybe do you use another browser? Maybe you clear your cache and cookies. And if you don't know, what do you do? You Google it. <laughs> so I do try to do that. But um in scenarios, we do try to show them that it's okay for um, students to make mistakes. So in the data analysis, I give them a little scenario of, hey, the student read the meniscus wrong on the barrette, and it changed the data. Now think about it. 
How will it change the data? How will it affect the data? Um, just to kind of get them to think about it. But we know students make mistakes and in chemistry, it's okay to make a mistake. It's a learning lesson. It's a way for you to think about, you know, how you made the mistake, why you made the mistake and how to improve yourself. Cause in chemistry, mistakes are usually happy little accidents, um, that allow us to move on and explore the world that we're in. Except for the mistakes that end up with glass all over the floor you know what? Like I tell my students, it's a-okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a dustpan for that. And they're wearing the proper PPE and closed-toed, closed-heeled shoes. So they should be safe. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful message to just take the temperature and the embarrassment down a notch. Oh yeah. When a student was really upset that they broke a beaker, I took a beaker and just slammed it on the floor and was like, whoops. Mistakes happen, you know, and students need to, you know, embrace that and understand it's okay. They're here to learn. That's what my job is. I'm here to teach them. If I expected them to know anything uh, and everything, I wouldn't have a job. They're here to learn from me. They're here to learn what chemistry is all about. They're here to learn about labs and techniques and things that they're going to be able to transfer over into their degrees or even into the world real world environment because chemistry is like cooking you make mistakes you you know you burn a cake okay <laughs> where did I go wrong let me start over and that's the beauty about chemistry and having hesitant students you know online it's hard to reach out to them and go it's okay don't worry mm -hmm. um, especially when a simulation is telling them wrong wrong it's like no 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 <laughs> let's rephrase that let's not wrong not correct, but let's think about how we can address this incorrect answer. So there are things about simulations I wish can be improved on, but that's for a later time. <laughs> <laughs> you need to team up with Barris's students to come up with simulations that are more directly what you would like and that leave a little yeah. more room for, for variation. For the errors and just yeah. go, okay. <laughs> so do either of you have questions for each other before I come up with another question for you? So for, Teresa, for the labs there, are they still happening all online? No in-person component else allowed? Yeah, we were trying to have Chem 202 to be in-person labs, but due to the um, increase of the numbers, we decided, so we're not always transitioning students. I hate doing that to students. We decided um, first day that we would have to go online for them. Because, you know, when you change the syllabus, when you change your course of how it's going to be taught, it puts a lot of stress on a student, like, ah, something new happened, especially during this time of COVID where everything's changing. <laughs> Every day, something new is happening. And that's why when um, fall semester happened, um, I made sure that we weren't going to change the syllabus. So I had a plan in the syllabus already that um, if we went from in-person to online, the syllabus was not going to change. The only part was going to change was the wording of in-person to online. online. <laughs> do, do you have a component for your grading for the experiments where the TA asks the student to explain what they've done in their own words for the experiment? 
Yeah, so that's where in the lab report, they write up a discussion about what is happening in the experiment. So there are several different versions of each experiment and the student needs to talk about the data. So what is happening in trial one? What is happening in trial three? Was there precision? Was there accuracy? Did you notice any systematic or random errors that occurred um, from the scenario that I gave them? Because I always put a few little mistakes in there mm -hmm. to, you know, it happens in a real life experience. What, what, I, what I found is in my lab class, we, I do the same thing with the report, but I also have another component where I instruct my TA to ask students verbal questions about what they did or their code, because there were unex, not unexpected, but undesired incidents of like report copying, et cetera. So we figured that asking verbal yeah. questions, explaining them what they did, kind of motivates them to learn it even better. Like at least they have to be more prepared to answer those questions in person. So even if they had help, at least they tried better to answer those questions. So they at least learn better. So that's what we observed over the past years. Yeah, um, we've experienced that as well. So um, three years ago, I put all the lab reports on Turnitin so yeah. that's actually where I collected most of my data for the new updated scenarios for my students. So, yeah. And Boris, um, you teach a 500 level computer engineering course, right? That was one. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the, lab, the lab class I was mentioning is a 300 level class. So how did your students transition with the changes? Because unlike my students, they were freshmen. So they just came into college just knowing things were going to be different. But your students, they actually had in-person experience of engineering courses. How did they transition? Uh, in the beginning last year, like in, in the middle of spring 2020, I don't think they had time to think about it because everything was so sudden, like they were just trying to stay afloat. But fall semester was a different story because it was like that. Some students thought it was even better because they could allocate time for themselves, reduce their commute time, etc. Some students found it extremely frustrating, but not for course reasons mostly but for like more like social reasons that they were not able to gather together. And it put a strain on some classes where they had to work in groups, especially our like capstone projects, et cetera. But overall, I think they did well at the end, but they, some of them are not 100% happy, I would say because of the social aspect of the things that they are missing from campus life. But the transition I would say was more like seamless thanks to the discipline, like the, the computers, the, the fact that we are working on computers, actually it's our advantage. And in my case here, I just took advantage of it. How did you, um are you teaching any of the courses that normally have group work for us? Yes. So those 
programming assignments from that class that I was mentioning yeah. were done in groups of two. Okay. Uh, and I, I am advising some capstone projects too. Like they are in groups of five or six in like usually. The, for the class part, the advantages is that they didn't need like any lab equipment or something. They just needed their own computers. So remote working was supposed to work really well for them. And that actually, I can observe that in their grades too, like it, it worked. All they had to do is like, they could even like open Zoom and just share their screen and just collaboratively write code or write report. Or they don't have to share a screen, they just can use Google Drive and just, it would show them whatever they're doing and it would work again. But I guess the issue is if they had to use the lab equipment and our department was able to actually get permission from the university to have like very limited lab classes in person. Mm -hmm. So how did, you said uh, a moment ago that the group work was, a, was more of a challenge for your students with remote instruction, but it sounds like they, they found ways to make it work pretty quickly with Zoom and with Google Drive. They, 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 they're very adaptive. They're much more, more adaptive than I thought actually. They, they are very solution oriented, which I liked. Like, and they, they know the technologies that they can use. Like mm -hmm. it's not just Google Drive, like they are like code sharing technologies, like repositories, like where they can write their code, push it into the repository and they can use later on. They don't have to just make a zip file or send it over email mm -hmm. like in the old days, but there are a lot of technologies that they can use and they're aware of those technologies, which made me happy to see actually. I tried to explain some of them to them, like in the office hours if they wanted help, but there were a lot of them, they didn't even ask for help and they just figured it out. Yeah, that's, that's very exciting that they were able to help each other out and find ways to make things work. What about you, Teresa? Do your students normally, I mean, there's, there's this stereotype lab partner thing. Do your students usually work in groups and, and how did that go? So last semester, they kind of did it on their own and a lot of students did get lost. Um, that's something I was changing this semester where we're telling the students labs are mandatory and you should be there for the full two hours and 40 minutes. And this semester I'm having the TAs break out their 24 students into four groups. So six students work together on the same data analysis so they can start talking to each other and form a little bit more of a community with one another during a Zoom session and a TA can pop in to each of those groups and you know, initiate more questions and help them answer some of the questions a little bit more. So, I mean, you, you've just started that. Do you have any idea how that's going or, I mean, is um, it too early to tell? Too early to tell. They only had um, their first lab this week, which was just going over how to write a pre-lab, how to write a lab notebook, let's do an exercise. So it's still a little early, but I'm hoping for the best. Mm -hmm. It seems like a constructive reaction to students getting lost and sort of trying to work at their own pace and missing that camaraderie and community. 
Were there other things you did in the fall to create a sense of community or were you focused on other things in the short run? So in, so in Chem 200, we have discussion groups. So um, those were always online starting in the fall. It was one place where I made sure the discussion TAs um, really talked to the students and go, hey, where are you struggling? It was those discussion groups became more catered to that group. So mm. what did they need help with? Um, how could this TA, you know, answer questions of that week that they were confused on? So we worked more with the discussion that semester to be more of a catered discussion mm -hmm. versus me going, hey, this is what you're going to talk about. <laughs> this time it was, you know, here's a suggestion. I'm giving you a suggestion, a worksheet, and just to initiate any discussion, especially the first couple weeks. But towards um, the middle and end of the semester, the discussion teams were telling me, yeah, we didn't use your suggestions. We, you know, catered to our students. I'm like, that's awesome. You keep doing that. You keep being you guys. So, and we're um, implementing that again this semester. That's terrific. So we have uh, a bit more time. Is there anything that you want to share that, that I haven't asked about or you haven't gotten a chance to explain? describe or explain? I'm good at this point. I'm good too. This has been really fun. It's very exciting to hear what you're what you've been working on and and some of the really creative solutions that you've come up with. Thank you both very